This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight, I'm going to cover a number of things. Um, first of all, I'm going to give you some general information about anxiety in childhood and adolescence, um, prevalence rates, etc. I'm going to talk to you about um signs and symptoms of anxiety and how it's often not, more often than not, very obvious. Um, I'm gonna also explain to you what's happening in our brains when anxiety spikes. I'm going to go over CBT, what it is and why it works. I'm also gonna talk to you about how parents and adults um, and caregivers of adolescents and children can, can actually be super helpful to anxious kids. And, and adolescents. So general information about anxiety. Um, of all the emotional difficulties that occur during childhood and adolescence, anxiety problems are the most common and fortunately also the most treatable. So they're the most common and they're very treatable. So nearly one in three adolescents will meet the criteria for an anxiety disorder by age 18. So that's a lot of, of kids. Um, waiting for an anxiety problem to go away on its own doesn't usually work. And usually anxiety problems get worse if they're un- left untreated. And, and we know that untreated anxiety problems are, are associated with a neg- number of negative impacts, including, you know, exacting a high cost on the individual and family's quality of life, um, their, their psychosocial functioning, um, professional functioning, academic functioning, um, that it also untreated anxiety issues uh, are associated with more serious mental health problems in adulthood, such as depression and substance abuse. So this is a very important problem to properly identify so you can help your kids Um, get appropriate treatment. And hopefully you'll know more about what that would look like after tonight. Um, So what does anxiety look like um, in uh, adolescence? Um, I'm going to read you uh, a little excerpt from my first book, um, if you don't mind. So Joseph is a 12-year-old who who attends a top-notch private boys' school. He gets straight A's, plays a team sport each season, and participates in a demanding choir program. His parents worry that he takes life too seriously, and he doesn't have much fun. When they encourage him to just hang out with his friends, he reassures them that he is fine with the way things are, and he has no time to do things that are not constructive. Frequently, Joe becomes worried he will not have time for everything he has to do. During these periods, his parents brace for heartbreaking crying fits as Joe sobs that he will be unable to memorize his music or complete a big homework assignment. His parents remind him that he often has these fears and always manages to get his work done and even to get perfect grades and good feedback from his choir master. In these moments of anxiety, Joe does not and in fact cannot see the evidence of past successes of the past successes his parents present to him. He cries, this is different, mom. Even when his parents remind him that he frequently tells them that tells them each particular situation is uniquely dire and yet it still works out just fine, he can't make use of the logic in the moment. After Joe has performed his songs and the choir in, in the choir and turned in his assignments, his anxiety passes. 
He tells his parents they were right and acknowledges that he need not worry as much as he does. In fact, he vows he will handle the next situation differently. Although Joe and his parents hope he will learn from this experience, unfortunately, his anxiety resurfaces the next time he faces this type of situation. So th this is that that little boy is has pretty perfectionistic worries, um, and that, that's a, a situation that I see quite often um, in my practice. Um, and so I am going to now uh, show you some um, some more visible and less visible. Uh, or meaning obvious or less obvious signs um, of anxiety that you may see in kids. And I'll let you peruse this. So some are quite obvious, some are not obvious. And I might add to the less obvious signs, um, extreme, um, extreme behaviors, um, extreme emotional dysregulation, even violence, um, and so, so you see a lot of different behaviors secondary to anxiety issues. Quite often, what I will see are kids who have been misdiagnosed. So, for example, if you've got a kid who's willing to do just about anything to avoid a situation that freaks him or her out, you might get, you know, extreme crying fits, throwing things, hitting. Um, and those kids are often misdiagnosed with um, uh, op oppositional defiant disorder or depression for the kids who who don't want to do anything because they're afraid that whatever they do do they won't like or they won't be good at et cetera et cetera. Um, so so here's what I hear from a lot of parents. I'm going to show you this next slide. You can see there's a lot of variation, and and many much of this would not at the in the face of in the face at face value seem like anxiety. How does anxiety operate in our brains? So anxiety comes in spikes and is rarely a constant thing. Um, you, you'll, you'll observe if you have a kid or an adolescent with anxiety issues, they'll be just fine. And then all of a sudden something will trigger um, worry. Um, and, and typically what triggers anxiety is being in a, in a particular situation um, where the person is really worried that there's going to be some consequence that, they, that, they, that is really scary to them or that is very unwanted. Sometimes anxiety can be triggered by thoughts or looking at a book or taking a class on communicable diseases in school. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're worried about, you know, catching tuberculosis or COVID. Um, Interestingly enough, I, my practice has not changed much um, during COVID. Um, there are other issues related to COVID that, that affect kids and their anxiety issues, but I really haven't seen an uptick in kids who are you know, particularly more worried about COVID. It's kind of interesting. People ask me that all the time. Um, so, um, so anxiety comes in spikes, um, and we all know that. For example, um, we leave our house, we're, you know, distracted, and then we wonder, oh, did we close the garage door? And then we, we get a little worried, and maybe if we're, we get stuck on that worry, we might go back and check it. Um, if we're in a particular social situation, um, may, making chit-chat, um, that, that's really hard for people with social anxiety. Um, I might, I might worry about, well, what do other people think of me? Um, 
because social anxiety is, is about fears of being rejected by others uh, and judged negatively. Um, I might, if I get a headache, I might, and I have health related worries, I might, might, that might trigger fears of some illness that I might have. I mean, what if I have a brain tumor, et cetera. Um, you know, the pandemic has changed many of the situations of, in our lives a great deal. Uh, social interactions have dramatically reduced or disappeared completely. Um, so if one has social anxiety, they probably feel great now because they don't have to be in the situations that trigger them. Um, a lot of kids have discomfort being um, on camera, on Zoom, et cetera. Um, but, but it will come back the minute, you know, once we re-enter normal life, as we, so to speak, those kinds of anxieties, they, they won't go away. They, they will come back. Um, travel plans. None of us are traveling. So a lot of people, kids, kids and adults alike, like have anxiety about flying, about packing, about being away from, from their safe place. So now there's none of that because we're all at home. Um, but those worries will come back when we re-enter normal life. Um, similarly, kids with separation anxiety and adolescents often have that as well. They're fine now because they're with their parents 24-7. Um, but when people, when life gets back to normal, that won't be the case. So um, some of this stuff you, you, you will, will just go away for now and come back. Um, so, so spikes in anxiety also, they, they really correspond with the activation of certain parts of our brain. At least this is what we believe. Of course, the brain is very complicated. And in particular, um, the part of our brain that processes fear, we believe is the amygdala. And neuroimaging studies, which there've been hundreds over the past two decades, um, that compare the brain activity levels of people with anxiety disorders to those without them. And, and they put them in situations that trigger um, worry and fear. Um, and, and what they notice is that um, um, the amygdala and related brain structures of anxious people are pretty hyper-responsive to cues that, that provoke anxiety. Um, the amygdala of an anxious person tends to activate more intensely and also for, lo for a longer duration than a non-anxious person. Um, I see this every day. Um, and, and people will tell you that they realize that their fears are very extreme or even completely irrational, and yet they still feel triggered. Well, this is why. Um, and people with these predispositions tend to be legitimately pretty scared because their amygdalas are just fired up in a very intense way, and they stay fired up for a lot longer than people who don't have those predispositions. Um, the other thing that's interesting is while a person's amygdala is fired up, um, the person tends to believe his or her fears for the duration of the time that, that they're spiking. Once the spike passes, the person tends to regain insight, like Joe. This is so typical of, of people with anxiety problems and it can help you understand them better. Um, there are perceptual differences that, that exist among people who have tendencies towards anxiety versus those who don't. Um, so individuals predisposed to anxiety tend to notice potential threats in situations that others would not consider dangerous or threatening at all. 
So an, an example um, that I often use is, let's say you have two 11-year-old boys, maybe 10, and they're standing on the street corner with their mom and dad or whomever, and a fire truck with sirens blaring goes by. One of the little boys is super excited and, and to, to see the spectacle. The other is, is terrified and wondering whether his house is burning down and somebody's getting hurt. Um, I'm, I've already alluded to this, but anxiety problems have a pretty strong genetic component. They do tend to run in families, um, as do the perceptual differences in the hyper-responsive brain activation patterns that we see. Um, an anxious person isn't anxious about everything, um, just particular things. So, you know, you can have incredible fears about coming into contact with contaminants, but have no problem with horror movies or whatever. Um, so another point is, is most, the vast majority of anxiety symptoms that clinicians see, such as myself, are really not caused by trauma. Um, I, I think that's a, a, a pretty dated view of anxiety issues. Um, even with PTSD, which by definition requires that you've been exposed to some trauma, um, those with the genet with genetic predispositions develop symptoms far more significantly than those who don't have the genetic leaning. Uh, and there's a group of people at UCLA um, who've identified a couple of genes that predict PTSD. Um, and I, I, I suspect that that work will continue. Um, um, there, there are particular themes that we humans tend to get stuck on. Um, you know, and, and in my, since I've been doing this for 20 years, I see it all across all different age ranges. So for example, simple phobias, which would include animal phobias and phobias of insects, extreme weather phobias, needle injection fears, natural disaster fears, and more. Um, the first question that people will ask or a layperson would say is, oh my gosh, did that did that kid have a bad experience with a dog? Did a dog bite them? Um, and it's, it's almost never the case. Uh, I'm working with a kid right now who has a pretty extreme dog phobia. Nothing ever has happened to him um, negatively related to a dog. Um, the content of obsessions, um, which is OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is no longer considered an anxiety disorder, but for all intents and purposes, it, it pretty much is. Um, the content of obsessions, there are many, many types, they really, it really has no meaning psychologically. It doesn't tell us anything important about the person because we see similar, we see types of obsessions across all ages, across all SES levels um, and in all countries. So, you know, it, it just tells you something about what anxiety is. Um, um, the other thing that that confounds parents and clinicians alike is that, you know, anxiety issues are really irrational and sometimes the content of them is really disturbing, um, especially with OCD. Um, there's a lot of magical thinking. Um, people can have, for example, aggressive obsessions, which means they're afraid that either harm is going to come to them or they're going to harm someone else unintentionally. Um, or sexual obsessions where people have fears that they are um, ha have some sexual deviancy. 
um, when, when it's just a thought that they had and an idea that they had that they got stuck on. Um, the other, another interesting thing about anxiety and related disorders is they wax and wane across a lifespan over a given day, a week, a month, years. They can go away for a while. They can come back. That is just their nature. So some people think because, um, because of that, it, it means that the, that the person doesn't really have an anxiety disorder, but that's just the way anxiety rolls. Um, another thing about anxiety issues is they shift and they morph. Um, it's in particular with obsessions, they, they change meaning a little in particular ways over time. Um, one fear might be taking center stage in a person's life for a period of days or weeks or months only to be trumped by a new one. The old one kind of loses its shine and the new one takes center stage. So that's, that's also common. Um, anxious children and adults for that matter, don't usually learn from experience. So remember Joseph, that's, that's typical. And, and um, that's just the way these people tend to, to um, roll and it, it frustrates them. Um, parenting styles may contribute to anxiety in specific ways, but it does not cause anxiety disorders. And I think parents are often wrongly blamed. So let's talk about CBT. A lot of people have heard about it and Dr. Becker had asked me to speak about this. Um, and a lot of people have heard about what a great track record it has for treating a number of psychological problems, which is true, but not that many people truly understand what it is. So I want to teach you <laughs> what it is. Um, because it, it's important, and this is something that I will explain to any person um, that I that I work with, that I treat, even little kids. I'll do it in language that's appropriate for them in ways that they'll understand it. Um, but what I'm going to tell you now, I will tell all of the patients with whom I work. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is really values um, educating people about what they're dealing with and educating people about how they're, what the treatment is like and why we do what we do. Um, so I'm kind of treating this, uh, this is all the same stuff I deal with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, okay, so CBT is an integration of two kinds of therapy, cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy. Um, cognitive therapy was created by Aaron Beck, who's a psychiatrist and professor at University of Pennsylvania. Um, who was originally trained as a psychoanalyst. He's still alive. He's about 100. Um, and I think he's still working. Um, he was conducting clinical trials of Freud's theories, um, trying to provide scientific evidence for its efficacy. And he was unable to find data that supported Freud's theories. So he embarked on his own. Um, and in his work with, with patients, um, he, he started to notice particular thought patterns. And he noted that depressed and anxious people initially showed particular uh, patterns that patterns of thoughts that were streams of negative or fearful thoughts that popped up frequently and spontaneously, um, almost like a reflex. And in, when I'm in my office, I'll often make myself have a reflex. It's just like, it, it just happens and people really aren't consciously aware that, that these thoughts are happening. And, and Beck termed these thoughts automatic thoughts. So here's some common types of automatic thoughts. Um, you don't really need, it's not that important to memorize the particular labels, 
but just to, to get a sense of, of the content of some of them. Of course, catastrophizing is very common among people with anxiety issues. You imagine that the worst case scenario is gonna happen, which would also be futurizing, which would be predicting the future. And I will tell you, if you're an anxious person, it's never a positive, happy prediction. It's, if it's about something that triggers you, it's, it's, it's pretty extreme and pretty scary. Um, there tends to be a lot of overestimating the probability that that bad thing will happen. Um, so mind reading is, a, is an, another thinking error that we see a lot with people with social anxiety because they believe that they can tell what other people are thinking of them, which of course, you know, none of, none of us can, um, but they believe they're uniquely skilled at it. Um, okay. So we tend, we humans, the thing that's really compelling about these automatic thoughts, and this is why I think it's important for you to know and for all the people with whom I work, is that we humans tend to believe our automatic thoughts and we respond emotionally as if they are accurate, which, which creates a lot of distress. So if I'm heading to uh, the park, um, I live across the street from a park and I am walking up the steps and I see a big German shepherd and I have my dogs and, I'm, and I have thoughts that, oh gosh, this dog is gonna attack my dogs. I will feel emotionally as if that is, is going to happen. My heart might start racing. Um, I might even decide to leave. Um, but that's, in my opinion, the, a really important thing for, for everybody to understand about um, the power of our thoughts in, in um, influencing how we feel emotionally. Um, now I'm gonna switch over to uh, BF Skinner, behavioral therapy. Uh, B.F. Skinner was a psychologist and a professor of psychology at Harvard from 1958 to 1974. And he's really the father of modern behavioralism and learning theory. He taught us how individuals acquire new information and how we extinguish old learning. Um, how does this apply to emotional states and anxiety in particular? Well, it, it actually is beautifully applies. So when we're in a particular situation that triggers worry or feel, we feel high levels of distress. And as humans, we don't just sit there and go, okay, fine. We want to do something to alleviate that distress or to um, make it less likely that the feared consequence of whatever situation we're in will not happen. So we respond with various behaviors, both mental and overt. So a mental behavior might be, for example, planning an escape route. If you're at a party um, or a kid is at a dance and they're thinking, oh my gosh, everyone's looking at me and thinking I'm the worst dancer ever. Um, a mental behavior might be planning when they're gonna leave. Um, so so we, we tend to engage in particular behaviors um, and we don't like it. And depending on how fired up our amygdala is, it, we can, you know, feel a range of dis from discomfort to pure terror um, and, and a lot of emotional distress. Um, so we, we really tend to gravitate towards these behaviors quickly to reduce the distress and to make it less likely, as I said, um, that these things will happen. The things that we fear might happen will happen. Um, and these behaviors do tend to be effective in the short run. 
Um, and, and so we will feel relief if we um, leave a situation that's triggering us um, or, or maybe we plan um, an escape route, et cetera. Um, does that sounds good, right? Well, n- no, it's, it's just the opposite. So when you do a behavior that gives you relief, your brain experiences that as a reward or a reinforcer because it took away or diminished the discomfort you felt. So when we, when a behavior is reinforced, it leads to more of that behavior. So avoidance and other actions to reduce distress, they quickly become habits because they are so reinforced. Um, So once you start engaging in safety or in in behaviors like that to mitigate um, anxious, your your anxiety or, or the feared consequences, it quickly becomes a habit. So every time the person engages or uh, in other similar behaviors, the brain's association between the fear and the situation are strengthened and anxiety grows and spreads to other similar situations. Uh, a good example of that is um, panic disorder, which really is, is just a fear of having panic attacks. Um, but people will start to avoid situations where they may have had a panic attack or they believe triggered panic and gradually they avoid more and more situations to the point where they don't feel that they can leave their homes because their home is the only safe place. And there are people uh, for whom even only one part of their home becomes safe. And that that happens not all at once. That that happens through a lot of avoidance behaviors and other, other similar behaviors. So though these things... Um, you know, people are really trying to make themselves feel better, but they don't realize that they're unintentionally feeding their anxiety and allowing it to flourish and grow. So I'm going to play a little video. So this, what I'm going to show you is um, a, a video that's a screen from the app that I'm developing and, um, and I just thought it'd be fun for you to see it. So it, it's not it's not perfect yet, but it's a, it's a it's a screen for the um, the app that we're developing on social anxiety. So take a listen and a watch. Hmm? What is social anxiety? Hmm. In simple terms, social anxiety involves feeling extreme worry and fear related to social and performance situations. That worry and fear typically focuses on feeling judged, being negatively evaluated, or being rejected by others. It's normal for teens to have some degree of social anxiety. We all care about what others think of us. It's estimated that as many as 10% of teens experience ongoing distress from social anxiety. We can't pinpoint a single cause for social anxiety. However, we do know that it runs in families. So if your parents or other relatives have any form of anxiety, you may have that disposition as well. Your genetics may make your brain pay more attention to socially threatening information, and your brain may also be more likely to interpret neutral situations as threatening, even when there is no real danger. To add to this problem, your brain may miss information that would signal there's nothing to worry about. The result is a lot of worry, fear, and anxiety in social situations. So how do you know if you have social anxiety? While not everyone's experience of social anxiety is identical, there are common elements. These can include intense physical sensations like blushing, sweating, shaking, and distressing negative thoughts in these specific situations. So um, hopefully you enjoyed that. We have uh, a number of those coming up. 
Um, but I want to use the example of, of a teen with social anxiety um, to explain how this works in kind of in real time. So if, if I'm a teen with social, first of all, social anxiety is, is, is um, characterized by extreme anxiety and fear of being judged or negatively evaluated in social and performance situations. Um, some performance situations, like obviously if you're speaking in front of a class or speaking in front of people such that I am, like I am now, that's, that's a clear performance situation. But also some people with social anxiety fear doing everyday things in, while other people can see them, like uh, using a computer, writing, um, eating in front of others, using a public restroom. Um, so they're, they're, it's, a, it's a more complex issue than, than just feeling a little anxious when you're around other people. Um, so if I'm a teen who has social anxiety, there'll be particular situations that trigger worries about being judged negatively. Um, and I might have strong physiological responses as the video showed you, like shaking, my heart might start be- beating really fast. I might start shaking. Um, I might get lightheaded. Um, I might feel nauseous, any number of the physical, um, uh, responses of, of anxiety that we find with anxiety. Um, so in addition to being worried about others judging me, I might start to feel these physical sensations, which then I might in turn worry other people will notice and judge me for in addition. So it is a lot to worry about. Um, um, so let's, let's just say that I'm, oh, I don't know, I'm a 15-year-old girl and wouldn't that be nice? Um, actually, no, maybe not so nice. Um, let's say I'm a 15-year-old girl and I'm, it's lunch and I'm walking around campus and I'm looking for my BFFs that I'm really comfortable with. I don't see them. I walk up to a group of four kids and one of the gr- kids I know really, really well, the other three, not so much. And one of the third is really popular and really intimidates me. Um, so I might be having automatic thoughts like, they won't want me to join them. I'll feel so nervous. I won't be able to say anything. I'll sweat and shake. They'll notice and think I'm weird. They'll think I'm annoying. They'll think I'm lame. So holding thoughts like that doesn't exactly make me feel comfortable about joining the group, even if I wanted to, because I believe my thoughts in that moment. Um, And even if I know rationally that they're probably not accurate or a big exaggeration of what would actually happen if I joined the group, um, I still feel terrified. Um, I still hold those beliefs. So you think I'm going to walk up to them? Probably not. I might decide to turn away and head in a different direction, look at my smartphone to act busy, um, make a quick excuse like, oh, I have to go talk to my history teacher about my, my quiz, all so I don't have to face the discomfort I feel. Doing those behaviors would offer me instant relief. Phew. Um, even though it seemed to help, me cope in the moment, unfortunately, it will result in more of that avoidance and escape behavior from me the next time I'm in a similar situation. So each time I repeat these avoidant responses um, in the moment, um, I learn to become more and more afraid and the strength of the learning increases. I become trapped in the cycle of anxiety. Uh, As it relates to social anxiety, there are other problems um, that arise from from relying on those strategies to alleviate my distress. Um, one of the most, the worst ones, in my opinion, is that, it, that I would give myself no opportunity to learn anything different. 
And in this case, that might be that the kids would probably be fine with me joining the group. I, I also miss out on any positives that may have occurred. Like they may have, may have wanted me to join them. They may have enjoyed my presence. Um, the other thing that, that is a potential consequence is my behaviors, those, those types of behaviors might signal to others that I don't want to engage. So they might think I'm stuck up or really shy, or they may judge me for those behaviors, the, the very behaviors that I'm trying to use to protect myself and make myself feel safer. Um, so I, I thought that was a, a good real-time um, example. Um, so in CBT, we call these behaviors, all the behaviors that people rely on to reduce the likelihood of feared outcomes, we call them safety and avoidance behaviors. And if in the case of OCD, we call them rituals or compulsions. Um, they all serve the same function, those behaviors, to alleviate distress or make it less likely that the feared consequence will come to pass. Um, the ways in which parents, teachers, and caregivers of, uh, of anxious adolescents, um, how they respond um, when anxiety is triggered also plays a crucial role um, in, the court, in the anxiety cycle. So when a parent, a teacher, a caregiver, or other family member change their, changes their behaviors to alleviate the anxiety of a child, we call this an accommodation behavior. Uh, anxious kids tend to experience higher levels of ongoing distress the non-anxious kids and hence rely on parents and caregivers and siblings even for help and comfort. It's only natural, right, to want to help. Um, but it's a slippery slope when we're dealing with an anxious kid. Um, so here's some common examples of um, ways in which parents, teachers, and caregivers might um, accommodate. And then I'm going to read you a, a little passage from a colleague's book. Um, you might answer your kids' questions repeatedly or provide repeated reassurance. You know, mommy, you know, or, or which restaurant are we going to? Or is that the one that has the, the, the parrot that squawks and freaks me out? Are you sure? Are you sure? And that kid might ask you five times, 10 times throughout the day. Um, your kid's anxiety has changed um, how your, your family's sleeping arrangements or patterns um, you, you have to go to bed at certain times. There needs to be multiple good nights and check-ins, um, white noise machines. Uh, I've seen it all. Um, your kid's anxiety may have led to changes in things you like to do, like watching the news, like inviting guests over or watching a family movie. Um, some kids are really terrified that if they watch a movie, they'll see something that, that scares them and that they'll get stuck on it and have nightmares, et cetera. Um, or they might, families might just stop discussing a particular topic um, for fear that it triggers one of the kids. There's somebody I'm working with now who has a pretty extreme fear of climate change. Well, of course, you know, that's in the media. It's interesting. It's something we, most of us care about, but the, the, the family just put the kibosh on any discussion of it. Um, you might avoid going places that, you know, will trigger anxiety um, in your kid. Um, and, and in, Teachers in school settings, what happens a lot is anxious kids are, um, you know, a, a teacher or a counselor will often encourage an anxious kid to come to their office, leave the classroom if they're anxious. Um, that's, that's a problematic behavior as well. Um, let me just read you um, a little, little bit more extreme versions of, of family accommodation. Um, and this is from... Um, Eli Leibowitz's book, um, 
which is a great new book. I'll, I'll show it to you, um, or it's listed in the resources. Um, but Eli Leibowitz is really the leading expert in family and parental accommodation. So here we go. Jill is 12 years old and constantly worries that her parent, that one of her parents will become seriously sick. She asks each of her parents about their health many times a day. Last year, Jill's dad jokingly offered to do 30 sit-ups in front of her just to prove how healthy his heart was and to show that he was in shape. Since that day, Jill has begged him to do the sit-ups every day and will cry if he refuses. Now Jill has started asking her mom to do the sit-ups as well. Here's another one. Malik is 10 years old and afraid to go to sleep in his bed alone. He says he sometimes hears noises and is worried that a burglar might be in the house. Malik would like his mother, Kiara, to sleep next to him, but she has a lot of housework to take care of. Kiara has tried putting a white noise machine in Malik's room so that he won't hear noises at night. Now Malik is afraid that his mother might leave the house and he won't hear her. So every night Malik lies in bed and his mother deliberately makes a lot of noise from the kitchen, banging pans and dishes so that he hears her and knows she's there. Unfortunately, all the noise Kiara makes actually keeps Malik from falling asleep. So those are some, you know, slightly more extreme versions, but these are things that we see all the time. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, Dr. Leibowitz, he's with the Yale Child Study Program, and he, I would say he's probably the leading expert in parental um, and family accommodation. Uh, every parent of an anxious kid does it. It's been, it's a very well-studied phenomena. Um, I think one study said 97% of parents, of course you do, because why would you not do it unless you, you knew that it was deleterious to, to your kid's um, well-being? So what's the problem with doing these behaviors, aside from the fact that they can be incredibly exhausting, distressing, and disruptive to a family? There's a direct positive correlation between the level of parental and family accommodation and symptom severity of various anxiety problems. So the more accommodation, the worse the child, child's anxiety gets. They function exactly the same as safety avoid, and avoidance behaviors and rituals. They, they serve to feed and maintain a child's anxiety. Um, Eli's study, um, Eli conducted a two-year study where he um, assembled a, a large sample of, of children and adolescents who met the criteria for various anxiety disorders. Um, and he ran a two-year clinical trial, um, a, a parent-only treatment for anxious kids, which focused entirely on reducing and eliminating parental and family accommodation. Well, guess what? All the kids got better. Um, and based on Eli's work, I, I always work closely with parents to identify and gradually reduce their participation um, in these behaviors. Um, I've had cases where, um, let's say, a kid just refuses to participate in treatment. I'm thinking of a teenager um, right now who I worked with and just was not interested, um, but his parents engaged in a lot of accommodation behaviors. And we just came up with, we assessed the, the behaviors in which they engaged, came up with plans to gradually reduce them, told, told the kid what they were doing and why. Um, and that kid got better. Um, it happens all the time. Also with young kids, um, 
you know, who, who um, for whatever reason might not be able to engage in treatment or kids with attentional issues. Um, this is a powerful, powerful um, phenomena and you guys can change your behaviors to help your kids overcome anxiety and your kid doesn't have to do anything different. That's pretty cool. So I think a huge takeaway that I really would like all of you to get is that all these behaviors, avoidance behaviors, safety behaviors, parental and family accommodation behaviors and rituals are the primary means by which all anxiety problems are fed and maintained for children and adolescents. And it's just the way it is. So how do we use CBT to treat these issues? Um, basically, what the most effective type of treatment is ex exposure therapy. So the basic technique of exposure exposures is to gradually face a situation that triggers your anxiety while at the same time not engaging in avoidance, safety, or accommodation behaviors or rituals. So the goal of exposures is to provide opportunities for the participant to learn something new in these new, in these trigger situations. Um, what we want people to learn is either that the feared consequences didn't happen, that they could tolerate some anxiety, that it wasn't as bad as they thought. But that is why we do exposures, to allow the person's brain to learn something new. Because if they continue to engage in all these other behaviors, they'll be stuck in the cycle of anxiety. Um, what we've learned, um, a group at UCLA in, in 2015 did some pretty incredible studies, Michelle Krask and all others, um, and, and we used to think that um, when we did exposure-based therapy, that the old associations would just go away, but then we noticed that people relapse more than we liked. So Michelle and, and her uh, many other brilliant scientists who do all the research on this, I don't do any of that, I just learn um, from them, um, that these old fear-based associations don't go away um, but our goal in doing exposure work is to load up a person's brain with lots of new associations, new safe, quote unquote, safe associations. Um, as you can imagine, many repetitions are needed to do this. Uh, it's almost like a person who's had a stroke and, and they have to reteach their brain to, to, to do things differently, to regain functionality that they've lost. Um, Really exposures give your brain the opportunity to rewire and to learn different beliefs and, and, and behaviors. And if you really think about it, um, resisting engaging in safety avoidance behaviors and rituals and accommodation behaviors in daily life are, are all exposures, right? Um, that's really how, how things work. Um, so I wanna just, I want to show you a, a heuristic that, that I use um, to explain, you know, to kids and adults alike, why they're going to have to put themselves in scary situations um, and not do all those behaviors because nobody would do it if they didn't understand the model and the rationale behind it. So let me show you another, um, another slide here. So the worry hill was a, um, a concept that Arine Pinto Wagner came up with many years ago. Um, she works with many, many children with anxiety issues. And it's just a, it's a really nice way to explain um, the model 
to, to people of all ages. Um, the habituation curve, it, 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 it's not what, what we use anymore, but, but um, I don't want to get into technicalities, but, but let's, let's talk about this, this diagram. So on the left, we measure people's fear and level of distress. Um, for kids, I call it a fear thermometer. It's just a simple light Likert scale. It's like 10 is the most afraid you've ever been in a situation. Five is you're not afraid at all. And a five is somewhere in the middle, um, et cetera, et cetera. I have not met a kid who doesn't understand it or an adult. Um, you know, sometimes anxiety doesn't feel like fear to kids. It feels like discomfort or dislike. Um, so I will adjust that sometimes if kids will say, well, I, it's not, I'm not afraid of it. I just don't like it. Well, we can, we can be flexible. So on this axis, we have your level of distress on this axis. We have being in the situation that gives you this distress. So, um, let's, let's pick it. I mean, if, if we were meeting live, I'd ask somebody to give me an example. Let's, um, let's take an example of a kid with contamination obsessions, um, and if we enter a situation that triggers that, that worry, let's say um, um, his, his, a, a kid's sister came home, you know, with a dirty backpack that just the kid saw some gross blotch of something. And so the kid sees that um, and, and, the, and the girl puts the backpack, the, his sister puts her backpack on the couch and the boy like, kind of flips out because like, oh my gosh, the couch is now going to be contaminated. So his distress level um, goes up pretty precipitously and human beings, you know, they, they don't like feeling distressed. So he'll, he'll re- do it a behavior to mitigate that. He might yell at his sister <laughs> to never do that again. He might um, demand that his, his mom or dad clean off the couch. He might, put a blanket over the couch so he doesn't have to touch it. He may just avoid sitting in that spot where his sister dumped her dirty backpack. So if he does those behaviors, when he reaches the peak of his distress, what will happen is um, it, it all stops there. He'll, he'll, the next time he's in the situation, his distress level will go right back up there because he's learned nothing new. But if we expose him to that situation enough times or for long enough without him doing those behaviors. So he's actually touching the gross backpack. Um, What happens is his brain will learn that he can handle it. And it may not be a nice, lovely curve like that um, with enough exposure. And and that in a nutshell is, is how um, I explain um, to kids and adults alike the model of exposures. And I'll often draw a little stop sign here at the top of the worry hill. And it's like, if you do all those behaviors, er, you're not going to get to the other side where you can feel comfortable um, in those situations. I wish I had more time to explain to you the nuts and bolts of how we come up with um, exposure plans. It's pretty straightforward, um, but it's pretty detailed. Um, um, and I, I, I just, I'm seeing that, that I really don't have time, but you know what I will do is um, one of the things that's really important for us to understand. And when we're treating people with fears is, is, is what we call their fear structure. So often you will hear um, from people uh, who have particular con- anxieties. I, I just don't like that. 
there was a girl that I treated who had a fear of eating particular foods because she had a metaphobia. She, she had a fear of vomiting. And at some point she'd eaten chocolate and it, she had vomited. So in her mind, she would attach negative emotions to the chocolate. And I don't like chocolate. And by the way, people commonly attach negative emotions to things that they're afraid of um, or things that make them uncomfortable, which, which, which has been studied also. And we know that to the extent that people do attach negative emotions to anxiety, they notice them more and they feel more intensely distressed by them. So one of the things we do is um, we do what is, um, what, what is known as um, the downward arrow technique. So the downward arrow technique, let's just say we've got a kid who has contamination obsessions and one of the situations that triggers him is going to the grocery store and his mom always wants him to go to help because she thinks, well, he'll get over it. And in a way she's right. So the, the situation is touching a grocery store shopping cart. Um, and if I asked him, okay, what's going to happen to you if you touch the grocery store, the shopping cart, he'd say, well, other people's germs are all over it. I'm not going to stop there because what's, what is he worried is going to happen if germs are all over it? I might, you know, what, so I ask him, I re I reframe his response and I ask him, well, what's going to happen if people's germs are all over it? I might catch the cold or flu and so on. Um, I ask him again, um, what if you catch a cold or flu? I might feel terrible and get all stuffed up. What if you get stuffed up and feel terrible? I won't be able to breathe at night. What if you can't breathe at night? I might die in my sleep. So it's really, it's really common for people to um, not even want to think about what they're afraid of. Um, in a sense, cognitively avoid it. Um, but, but every CBT clinician will use this technique and, and um, it's, it's very, very um, important and useful. Here's a, um, here's a slide that shows the results of some of um, downward arrow techniques. So for, for various situations, like taking the school bus, you can see in the middle, you know, I might get really nervous. I might throw up. If I throw up, kids will think I'm gross and weird. So in, in general, you know, we try and keep things as objective as possible. Um, and um, when, when we work with people with anxiety issues, because anxiety is a pretty intense emotion, um, we use various tools and strategies um, that we teach people that help them maintain their um, objectivity. So I will um, hand out um, pictures of a fear thermometer. I'll ask parents and kids to make them. So if a, if a kid gets distressed, a parent can say, okay, what's that on your fear thermometer? Another thing I do with kids and adolescents is ask them to nickname their fear and anxiety, like worry bug, worry wart, worry dog. And the purpose of that is not to be cute, but to serve as a cue for all they've learned, hopefully from me, <laughs> about how anxiety works, but also to give parents a way to communicate with their kids um, without doing accommodation behaviors, like reassuring them, oh, don't worry, Johnny, the dog won't bite you, it's fine, or lifting the kid up in, in, in a situation where a kid is afraid of dogs. Um, so a parent can say, oh, um, John, is that worry bug? What's your fear thermometer? All these things um, can really help. Um, here are the books. 
Um, this one you can get now. This one I think you can pre-order. Um, and also the app that I'm developing with Peter O.D. is called Float. And essentially it will guide um, teens through exposures that they can do themselves with, with our help. Um, so that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Walker. This was a fabulous window into um, this I, this this very research supported uh, approach to your thinking and what happens in the room so much with these kids and families. I, you know, I, I'm wondering. I know this was this kind of a limited time to get to the in a way the the next steps for some of these kids and families, but. If we can relate this to perhaps some of the experiences that many kids or families, just to pick one, might be experiencing, perhaps in, in almost a subclinical way, it, maybe the social anxiety about returning to school after being away for so long. I, I wonder what kinds of tips you might have for families where their natural parental response is, oh, you're going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. I'm sure the kids will be all right. Everybody's been through the same thing. What's an alternative response and what are things perhaps they could do that would be like little mini exposures, like going to the school, you know, and visiting or something before you Right. Right. Well, right. I mean, you know, if, if they have the benefit of being able to explain this to their kid, how this works, um, great. But if not, they can say, well, why don't we go practice it? Let's, let's do it little by little. How hard would it be to just drive by the school. I mean, that might give some kids a fear thermometer. And then you, let's just do it a bunch of times. And you can use analogies. Like, you know how it takes time to learn anything new. Um, let's go practice. I mean, I spend most of my time doing exposures with people, not talking about them. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's go into your room and, you know, do this or that, or mess up your desk. If for a kid that has uh, ordering and arranging obsessions, let's practice. So practicing doing the things that make you uncomfortable so you can get more comfortable. Um, right. You just got to be a little creative. Exactly. That's one of the things I've learned from you also is that that creativity piece and, and that, that there, we're not, we don't always um, intuitively know how to break these down mm -hmm. into um, less threatening ways and, and how to assess that with, with our own kids about Okay, well, how hard would it be if we just did this um, as ways of graduating? So that's that's lovely. Thanks. Hey, we have one question about um, how how you think about incorporating medications with CBT. Um, yeah, that's a good question, and I have to look at my calendar to see how many kids. I mean, obviously, I don't prescribe medication. Um, there are instances where we need snow tires on an icy road. Um, either, but, but I always will try doing CBT first, but if, if a kid refuses and they're not, you know, have experiencing high, high distress and they refuses, they refuse to participate and parents for whatever reasons can't ad address their own behaviors. I mean, everyone's different. We all have our stresses and strains and our strengths and weaknesses. Um, um, medication can be really helpful and it doesn't, some people worry that if you take medication while you're doing exposures, it will negate the benefits of exposures. It's not true. Um, the, the benefits will remain even if, if a kid goes off medication um, after uh, and it, 
it can make exposures go much more quickly and, and be a little easier. It really varies. I've got another question I'm gonna read for you. Is, um, can you apply the techniques you've described to those of us dealing with a new phenomenon, the anxiety of being around others who take less seriously COVID, social distancing and masking behaviors, I'm among those lucky enough to be vaccinated and I'm pondering how to approach emerging from my isolation given that repeated exposures uh, used to be exactly the problem. Um, now, should we seek exposure out? What, what do we do? Well, okay. So I can get my knickers in a knot when people don't follow rules and stuff. <laughs> like, you know, it ticks me off when people don't wear masks, but um, I have to practice what I preach. Um, and one thing that's very effective is accepting, right? I think you have a speaker um, on ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. When we accept certain things that we just can't control, it, it, our lives, we, we feel a lot less distress. Obviously you have to be safe, but accepting, yeah, there are people who just don't care as much as I do. It's, it's hard, but that will help you a great deal. It would have been prompt for our next week's talk. That's perfect. That's Dr. Oh, Sykes will be talking about acceptance and commitment therapy as, as that kind of model. But it, it also brings me to thinking about, you know, you and I have had this conversation um, where to, to what degree is learning one's ability to modulate our, our sympathetic response, our, our sitting in our amygdala, through a relaxation and mind-body practice in order to ease that sense, almost in a way that you were talking about how medications can do it, so that it makes it easier to do, say, the exposures or be in the experience. Right. You know, that that's a it's a it's a really good question and a, a tricky, a little bit of a tricky question to answer. I do not um, use a lot of relaxation. Um, strategies for people that I work with. And the reason is, um, there are a couple reasons. One is if, uh, be, then that becomes a safety behavior. And it also messages to the person that anxiety is bad and they can't tolerate it. And, and a lot of re the reason we do exposures is to um, get people to, to learn that they can tolerate some anxiety. We all have anxiety. Some people become very, very afraid of just the, the, the littlest glimmer of anxiety. Um, I think there is a place for that, certainly. Um, I don't do a lot of it. Um, right now I'm working with a girl who has um, needle injection, pretty severe needle injection phobia um, and has a pretty serious disease that has made her getting vaccinations and blood draws very late. Um, and, <laughs> and she would flinch and be really stiff. And so obviously some relaxation of her body is useful and also gives her something to do rather than worry, right? So if she's thinking, okay, my arm's like a noodle, that's what we came up with and I'm gonna breathe. Um, I don't have a problem with that, but I'm always mindful of ways that, that we can unintentionally reinforce this fear of being anxious. Um, I'd rather have someone get, get used to it um, rather than have to rely on those strategies. But there's a time and a place for those. 
It sounds, um, um, if I'm reading you right here, a little bit like the, the, the how of how it's taught and the expectations from the beginning are really, really important. So such that if, if like the, just, just take a deep breath is the, the unspoken expectation is, well, that's going to cure it and you shouldn't feel this. Right. And instead, if it is, um, if, if there's an understanding that learning relaxation practices have nothing to do with getting rid of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Or sure. I mean, we all, I think it's great to meditate and I mean, I wish I did it. I don't, um, I probably would benefit from it. Um, I mean, I think there are many self-care practices that, that benefit us a great deal, but yes, not, not in response to anxiety. That's when it becomes a problem, especially for somebody, for example, who has panic disorder, who's afraid of the anxious sensations, then we would definitely not want to do that because we're just teaching them that they're bad. And then they won't get used to them. And, and in fact, when we treat people with panic disorder, we intentionally bring on the sensations by having them do what we call interoceptive exposures, where we have them hyperventilate on purpose and they get all dizzy and they think they're going to pass out sometimes and they don't. And, and then they do it over and over again and they get used to it. They learn to tolerate it. And, and to be clear, you do this in a graduated rate, right? Somebody listening might, with panic disorder might be, well, that's what I'm going to do the first visit. No, no. I mean, it's very collaborative. So CBT, it's always like, well, would it be okay if we did this? How hard would it be to do that? And, and, it, and that becomes very clear. I, I'm never going to ask someone to do something that is way too scary, nor will I ask someone to do something that they aren't confident that they can do. If, if they're not confident, I'll make it easier. Because I want them to have success. I don't care how easy it is. I know once we get going, they'll make progress. And, and whatever's related to that particular fear will diminish and we'll get there. So it doesn't even matter where we start. We just have to start somewhere. Um, I, you know, I'm also imagining um, being in this, listening to this and, and trying to think about how to apply this as a parent in, in certain situations. And the, 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 the concept of accommodation is often so new to parents because it's so counterintuitive to the parental role of protecting, soothing, comforting, and, and resolving issues and fixing problems. And this is one of those things that's so hard to recognize that you can't fix it. Um, so when, when it comes to recognizing accommodation, um, it, sometimes I've noticed it's challenging to shift from that pattern to responding in a compassionate way that's not just, you know, cold. Do you have any suggestions for, for how to go about that? Well, yes, many. Um, first of all, getting a little bit educated about what, what accommodation is, because any parent who, who knows that what they're doing is doing is the opposite of being helpful is usually pretty motivated to, to, to try and change their behaviors. Um, some parents have a really hard time with it, especially parents who have their own anxiety issues. Some of them just have a hard time. Others don't. Um, but getting educated because in a way, reducing those behaviors is the most significant way to show how much you love your kid. And I, I, you know, sometimes it takes a while for people to get that, but um, reading Eli Leibowitz's book, I mean, um, is great. Um, 
really learning about this stuff. I mean, that's why I write my books and stuff because I want more people to understand these principles because they're pretty straightforward and simple. I have one more question on here. How do you get a kid or teen to eat carrots or many foods if they are so afraid of eating certain foods? Uh-huh. That's a really good question. Um, I, I run into that is if the fear is choking. Um, I have a kid right now who, who I'm dealing with that and carrots. It's the foods that are harder and more likely to cause choking. Um, so safety behaviors or rituals that, I, that those kids tend to do are over chew their food, uh, chase with water, um, um, hold part of chew up their food and then hold part of it in their mouth and only swallow part of it. So when I'm doing exposures um, with someone like that, I'll come up with whatever amount of food, little bit, like I started with apples instead. I'm going to start with something that's challenging, like a four or below. Carrots would, for this kid, were like a six. That's too high. So we start with something that's a challenging but manageable. We pick a small enough piece so that she can do it without doing any of the rituals. And it's, so there's a lot of, let me, you know, open your mouth. Uh, let me see, you know, is it still chunky? Do you have food left in, in a nice way, a collaborative way? And they understand. And, and there's no water chasing. And then you just do it over and over and over again. I spent a whole hour doing that yesterday with somebody or Tuesday. Um, and she's making great progress. That's how you do it. You start easy and you, and you do it over and over and over again. Like probably there are 40 little pieces of apple and that's what, that's how you do it. And you reward kids. I'm big on rewards for doing exposures. Lots of rewards. Um, and I know there's schools of thought that say that kids should think, you know, should get intrinsic rewards from these things. But rewards work, man. <laughs> so I, I'm really in favor of them. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's an important piece, too. Um, it's it's hard to do the work. Yeah. It's really not easy. It's really hard. It's really a challenge. And, you know, I'm so proud of so many, you know, the kids who, you know, the kids who are mentally disciplined, they get it and they do it and they get better fast. And it's lovely to see. And then there's lots of different permutations therein. I have another question for you. Do you think we as a nation or world, okay, this is getting big. Okay. um, Are now more quote unquote woke to the challenges of mental health given the shared experience of everyone dealing with the same pandemic this past year. Are, are we more aware? Are, are we, as, a, as a population in general, do we have a better awareness of the challenges of mental health given what everybody has been experiencing or not? Well, I would hope so. But what I, what I will tell you too about anxiety issues is the more idle time we have that's not spent in structured activities, the more, ang- more time we have to worry. Um, so I think many of us have had a lot of time to reflect. Um, and I'm not saying we should all just keep ourselves busy constantly so we don't become anxious. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that would actually be a good outcome that, you know, if mental health issues are less stigmatized, um, I, you know, I, I, the people that I work with are great. Um, and anxiety issues are so treatable and it's a pleasure to, to, to kind of teach people how to get past some of this stuff and see them thrive. So um, I think 
the destigmatization is the most important part. And we see that a lot, I think, now. Yeah, and of course, the most, um, perhaps the most famous example of that is Megan with their interview right. talking about her depression and her suicidal thinking. Right. Um, it's, it's similar to that, the, to me, to that notion that used to be actually among even healthcare providers and still is. I see this in trainees. They are so kind of um, brought about asking about suicidal ideation, asking questions about people who might have these thoughts about hurting themselves because they don't recognize the thoughts or thoughts and they're not necessarily identified with somebody. Right. Right. I, 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 yeah, I think that's maybe why a lot of clinicians don't gravitate towards the work that I do because you really have to ask the hard questions. Like if somebody's afraid of dying, you have to ask them, well, what are you worried is going to happen if you die? It's not, you do, and you'd be surprised what you hear. I might, you know, some people are afraid of oblivion. Some people are afraid of missing out. Um, and, and you really do have to have the courage to ask and people appreciate it. They do. And, and kids appreciate it when their parents have, um, the develop the capacity to be able to ask questions that sound really scary, but actually hold them. Yeah. Even if they don't have answers to having them out can be really old. Yeah. I think people are worried, Oh, it's going to make them more scared. Well, I ask all the questions and including suicidal ideation. um, You just, if you're a clinician, you just have to learn by doing it a lot. Then you'll become less afraid. I have another quick question for you. Do you ever work in small groups with kids or with parents? No, I don't. Um, and there's often times where I'll think, I, I think it'd be so great for this patient to get to know this patient or that patient because they have similar issues. Um, obviously, we can't do that for confidentiality purposes. But the reason I don't do groups is because they they tend to become like, forums for war storying, you know, and, and, you know, talking about all the the terrible things that they're afraid of and not making um, constructive um, movement. And everyone's different too. Um, I haven't done it. Um, I know it it can be done. Um, I don't do that. Um, But um, I do think that, you know, people love to hear that they're not the only one you know, they, they do like that. So for the support part, but everybody's different and they're going to be working on slightly different things. Um, I do think there's a place for it if people are in active treatment and then they have a support group, like how did you do with your exposures? That would be great. I don't do that. But if they're not engaged in structured CBT and they do that, it's probably not going to be helpful. Thanks again, Dr. Walker. Thank um, you. Hope the rest of you have a good evening. Thank you all for listening. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.